0: Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most
2: influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris.
1: I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. I'd like to take a few moments to talk about the importance of independence in filmmaking, particularly in genre filmmaking. For years, horror films were almost exclusively made by independent sources. Blood and guts and the less polite elements of society that are the meat and potatoes of horror films were way too rude for the studios to handle. Yes, Universal was the studio of monsters in the 30s and 40s, but they were big productions, beautiful films, but pretty bloodless and pretty tidy. Even the giant nuclear monsters and their brethren that were set loose in the hardtops and drive-ins in the 60s, shocking though they might have been at the time, were still polished and trustworthy. They might provide some frights and nightmares, but extreme storytelling was not at all common. By the 1960s, however, there was an independent underground that climbed out from under the rocks and got their movies into the cinemas. Movies that broke the rules, didn't say please and thank you, that didn't necessarily have happy endings, that dripped with blood, and a level of violence that had never been seen before. Paramount's release of Psycho may have kicked it off in 1960, but Carnival of Souls, The Thrill Killers, Night of the Living Dead, The Sadist, Deranged, Peeping Tom, the films of Herschel Gordon Lewis, they would never have happened through the Hollywood studio machine. Yes, there was a lot of cruel, unnecessary garbage that happened once it was discovered that you could make a movie cheaply, without movie stars, on 16mm film, and get it released into the same movie theaters that played the blockbusters. It awakened a sleeping giant of bad taste and dark dreams. But some of those dark dreamers were artists, men and women who truly had a vision and no access to the studio machine. Visionaries like George Romero, Roman Polanski, Mario Bava, Roger Corman, and their contemporaries could only come to full creative flower in the world of independence. But independence also meant the ability to tell original personal stories that would otherwise go unseen. Movies are made for an audience, but they don't all have to be made for the biggest possible audience. The more a movie costs, the more levels of approval it has to pass through, and the more fingerprints are left on it. The auteur theory goes out the window when your movie costs $200 million. But losing the handcuffs created cinema artists. Not only were the films less censored, so were the ideas. And they got personal, and personal horror really gets under the skin. David Cronenberg was inspired by a horrible marital breakup to make The Brood. Guillermo del Toro made Kronos and The Devil's Backbone. Toby Hooper made The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Jennifer Kent made The Babadook. Karen Kusama made The Invitation. Jordan Peele made Get Out. Often their independent films gave them the keys to studio features, even to Oscars as in Guillermo's The Shape of Water. But in so many cases, the best work by visionary storytellers is done outside of the system. Speaking of independence, our guests on this episode, Elijah Wood and Daniel Noah, created their own independent studio, SpectraVision, and have been responsible for bringing extremely feisty original genre films like Mandy and A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, among many others. They also host the new podcast, Visitations on Shudder. You know Wood's work as an actor, of course, but we're going to talk with him and partner Daniel about their love of renegade genre films after this. elijah wood yes that elijah wood and daniel noah are two of the partners behind the award-winning genre production company spectre vision responsible for the sundance hits a girl walks home alone at night and mandy just to name a couple The two producers have always been fascinated by the dark allure of horror, and on Visitations, their first podcast, they explore the exhilarating, entertaining, and sometimes even therapeutic experience of facing one's fears in art. Each episode, Elijah and Daniel travel to the home or workshop of one of their favorite creators in the genre community and beyond visiting with filmmaker Taika Waititi, director and star of What We Do in the Shadows, and Thor Ragnarok, Mike Flanagan, writer-director of Netflix's The Haunting of Hill House and the upcoming Doctor Sleep, Anna Lily Amirpour, writer-director of A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night and The Bad Batch, Rick and Morty co-creator Dan Harmon, musician Flying Lotus, fashion designers Kate and Laura Molivi of Rodarte, and more. Listen in on intimate conversations with these exciting artists as they explore the ways in which they've turned their deepest, darkest fears into art. Season one of Shudder's original podcast, Visitations, is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Shudder.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been 40 years now, and Fangoria is better than ever, each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, well, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code POSTMORTEM to save 15% off your subscription. That's Fangoria.com, promo code POSTMORTEM to save 15%. Well, let's get into background and and how it started for you. Elijah, uh, you were into music as well as work as an actor from your very youngest years. Uh, Which came first?
3: Um, Or did you separate them? Film. I mean, I I started working very young. I was seven when I moved out to Los Angeles from Iowa to audition for commercials, which is initially what my mom thought I would do. Um, And that parlayed into films relatively quickly with small roles in, in certain films and then my first sort of larger role was in a movie called Avalon. Um Yeah, better. that was one that particularly made people sit up and take notice. Oh well wow. well anyway Including that, me. <laughs> cool, thanks. Yeah, I was eight when I made that Barry Levinson's it was part of his um Baltimore trilogy, I think, mm-hmm. of films. Um so I fell in love with 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 acting and cinema. That that was my my sort of entrance into to this realm of uh the this, this sort of creative realm. Music came to me later, and it, it it never really parlayed into anything more than simply a hobby. Like I've been a record collector, and you know I had a small label at one stage. So um, Simeon Records is no longer. With it's us? no longer a thing. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. but I but I DJ. I play other people's records, and music's a huge part of. My life and and ultimately a part a big part of what we do at Spectre Vision too. So I, I, that that interest and that love of music has been parlayed into our endeavor of, of of producing genre films because like it's very important to Daniel as well. And we almost have this sort of curatorial approach to who we get to do our our, our music for our films.
2: And we were in music management for that's true, a, a, yeah. a while. Um, we ended up for various reasons deciding to to get out of that business, but that was uh, out of the gate, uh, very important value to us was f- making sure that we were creating progressive movie scores. And so we very early on uh, had the idea that we should reach out to composers who were making uh, avant-garde electronic neoclassical music who had not scored before mm. uh, because they were making sounds that were fresh and to see if we could recruit them to scoring movies. And so, you know, we managed Johan Johansson and, Haushka and, and and gave a lot of these composers their first jobs.
1: We gave I'm a it. huge fan of progressive rock and was in a progressive rock band. You were? Oh, 70s, really? What, what way back when. What oh, was it? Horse called? feathers. Horse but, feathers. Uh, yeah, yeah, You won't find any albums. <laughs> but, but I mean, music and film. It all film is the composite art form. Yes. You've got composition. You have music you have performance, you have cinematography, you have writing mm-hmm. and acting. All Costume, of these things yeah. are are such a huge combination into what this this <clears throat> package becomes. Mm. And it seems like you guys both have an interest in all of those fields. We yeah. do.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's really I think there there can be both in genre and in independent film sometimes a laziness about production value and 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 I, it's, it's always been very important to us that even though we're often working on limited budgets, that we really f- we find a way to, to make sure that we're delivering on, in every department uh, with what we have.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you talk about limited budgets. Elijah, you have worked on the biggest of movies as an actor in The Lord of the Rings movies, right. The Hobbit films, and the like. But as a producer, you've chosen to go very independent. Mm. So tell me, was that a cognizant choice for the the sake of freedom, creative freedom, or was it that was where you could get your greatest foothold into what you wanted to do?
3: Um, I think a little bit of both, but it it was it, 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 it lends itself to the kinds of films that we want to make. Um, I don't know that we could have made any of our films thus far at studios. Hmm. When we When we first started the company, ultimately what we realized we were looking for were things that people had passed on or were too difficult for, for you know, larger budgets or studios to, to get their head around. And and we found that those sort of ugly stepchildren or beautiful stepchildren, yeah. the things that we wanted to make and, and and ultimately the things that we fell in love with and wanted to start a company to begin with. Right. So we could never have done what we've accomplished over the last nine years at, at a studio. We could never have made Mandy. We could never have made A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. That movie was black and white and in Farsi. There's no yes. way we could have made that. That. So yeah. we, we just wanted to be a place that supported visionary filmmaking and ideas in genre that were slightly unexpressed or slightly outside the box. We didn't want to make your typical genre movies because that was being well handled and is currently being well handled by a lot of different people. We wanted to make things that, were, that we hadn't really seen before. And that very much lends itself to an independent approach to give our filmmakers the freedom to make the kind of choices that they want to make that weren't going to be dictated by someone up on high who's got, you know, who's holding the purse springs.
1: Now, your folks ran a deli when you were a kid, right? Yeah, you've (laughs) done your research. (laughs) I try. Yeah. Uh, But uh, I I also just like to know about the artists I'm interested in. Sure, yeah, yeah. And so were your parents into the arts as well? Were they the ones who encouraged you, or did you find it yourself?
3: They, look, I think movies were a big part of our upbringing, but I wouldn't say that my family... Or that my parents were cineastes, so be, right, right. But they 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 but loved. Did they movies. play instruments? Did they draw? Not really, my dad yeah. was a big music fan, so music was always around. I have an older brother who's seven years older than me, so he provided a lot of my cult- cultural reference mm. points from music, uh, which was wide ranging, and film as well, and genre film. Ah. My introduction, my introduction to horror, really came from my brother because. I had the benefit of the older brother who would bring his friends over with, you know, rented movies from the the, the video rental store. Taboo to you. Completely. Yeah. <laughs> and he would be like, yeah, you can you can watch this as long as you don't tell mom. <laughs> and that <laughs> happened all the time. And I got exposed to really fucked up shit when I was like seven <laughs> years or younger. What
1: really rocked you first? What was the one that you got away with seeing that that maybe converted you?
3: The thing that sticks, the movie that sticks out in my mind is a direct-to-VHS feature called... Um, Truth or Dare: A Critical Madness. Oh, yeah, directed by Tim Ritter. Yeah, I love that film. I right. still love that movie. It's, it, 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 it's the, I mean, there is that thing of the "it's so bad it's good" genre. Right. It has a bit of that, but it's it's deeply funny, maybe un, unintentionally. I love the performances. It's just it, it has that quality that directed VHS films have mm-hmm. that I think I, I really enjoy. Um, there's they're earnest. And they're made with very little resources, but they fucking put everything into those limited resources and you can feel it. It It absolutely does. And it comes off the screen. So I remember seeing that when I was. I had to have been six,
1: Wow, six or
3: seven, maybe seven. That's maybe a seven. pretty
1: heavy duty one to, yeah. to, to break your cherry. With. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, and I loved it. Yeah. And I still do. I recommend it to a lot of people. <laughs> Daniel, what about your background? Did you come from a family that was artistically? Very employed? much so. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat>
2: um, I mean, I came from a fractured family, but the household that I grew up in was, um, musicians and writers. Uh, so my, my grandfather, uh, who, was a very active part of my life. Very young was a jazz musician by trade. So he would, you know, he supported a family of five his whole life playing gigs, uh, out in clubs. And then his eldest daughter, Judy Roberts, who still plays in Chicago and, and in Arizona, uh, was also, uh, she was, uh, you know, a very beloved local jazz performer as well, and was releasing albums. And my stepfather was a journalist; he was a, a re- reporter for the Chicago Sun Times, and so yeah, it was really valued, um, in, you know, in my family. Uh, the arts and creativity was, uh, you know, it was it was just sort of in our blood. Mm.
1: Were you also a genre fan from an early age? Yeah.
2: Well, yeah, I was um, for a lot of reasons, uh, I think. But uh, my that beloved grandfather, whom I invoked a moment ago, uh, when he, my parents split up when I was two and my mother worked and so he would take care of me uh, and my grandmother worked as well, but he was free during the day because he mm-hmm. worked clubs at night so he would take care of me um and uh we would watch the universal monster movies together, oh, nice. saturday matinees and a little black and white tv on the kitchen table i and, used to do
1: that with my I mom late at night you know really she, she was really good about it my home was a fractured one as well uh-huh. from an early age i find a lot of genre fans come from outsider mm. families yes yes we've discovered
2: that as yeah. well <laughs> yeah
1: yeah so i had a real uh, i mean it but
2: I think there are a lot of those universal monster stories. I think, you know, when you go back and really look at them closely now, they are stories of sympathetic outsiders who are, you know, there, there are a few exceptions. The invisible man is a terrible, terrible person. But, <laughs> yeah. but for the most part, the monster in Frankenstein, the wolfman, the creature from the Black Lagoon, um, they're all um, pretty sweet. They're all, and tragic. Tragic. And they're all misfits. They're all misunderstood. Yeah. They're all they're all um, they're all made into monsters. They're not born that way. Yeah, and their stories are tragic. They're very yeah, tragic. Yeah, very sad. Yeah. So I love those films, and and I think because I was watching them with someone that I had such a loving relationship with, so young, I, I started to associate horror with sort of a safety and a comfort, yeah. and um, uh, that you know has never left me
1: so it was your pig pen blanket. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. So when you were working as an actor as a kid, Elijah, mm. um, were you hoping to be able to do horror, horror stuff?
3: Uh, that's interesting. Hmm. Um, when I was that young, maybe, not from a filmmaking standpoint, maybe as right. an actor. But yeah, but to as be an to actor, yes, that's what I mean. be yeah. In, yeah. In, When did you formalize kind of for
2: yourself that you that horror, horror was something that you wanted to do as it's, opposed to just spectate
3: uh that didn't come until i was older until yeah. i was in my 20s right. and i realized that i wanted to produce by means of just wanting to facilitate f- the kinds of films that i wanted to see and facilitate filmmakers right. that i loved, which all existed in the genre space um but i don't know look i think there are the these good little... sun is close it is yeah and i remember being really conscious of it at the time yeah. reading the script and, and knowing that there was a pretty massive divide from what i had been previously working on which were sort of more family oriented um lighter fare mm-hmm. to something that was pretty dark with a really <laughs> twisted kid at the center of it who yes. did horrible horrible sadistic things uh and I loved it I, <laughs> I, you know I understood what that yeah. was yeah. and and um I was I was keen on that but you know there were there were things like I remember being I must have been 9 when I was on the set of uh, of radio flyer yeah. and it was, it was over Halloween and I, I was obsessed at the time with uh, the Phantom of the Opera, I mm-hmm. uh, the, the musical, not the, the yeah. not the film. Right, right. Um, okay. But I, I still loved that, that tragic character of this mm-hmm. horrific, you know, disfigured human who yeah. was in love with someone who was made into this monster. It's yeah. very much in mm-hmm. that realm. And, and the makeup department on the film actually made me up as <gasps> The Phantom of the Opera oh, for cool. and Halloween. Oh and, wow! Like, did a, <laughs> do like, amazing. Yeah. How, how I do somewhere. Mean, like, yeah, how accurate was? Very good. Yeah, and everything. Oh yeah, I had prosthetic like latex oh, right, all, all over my right. face, the and then I had the mask, so I could version. take the mask right. off, and there would be a <laughs> right. burnt face. Whoa. Yeah, it was really That's cool. So cool. So these there's these little touchstones throughout. But in terms of like, yeah, wanting to wanting to pursue genre. That really crystallized around the time that we met.
1: And how did you meet and how did that come yeah, together? Yeah, go for it. Yeah.
3: So we met um, the three the three original
2: founders of Spectre Vision, who were the two of us and Josh Waller, met in, I think it was about 2009. It was about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, where, so at that time, I had been working as a screenwriter, uh, a frustrated... Well paid but unproduced screenwriter in Hollywood, <laughs> not an uncommon story. I've been there too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Josh was, uh, you know, had been making short films and was trying to make his first feature. So we had a project that I'd written that Josh was going to direct that Elijah attached to play the lead in along with a couple other actors. And that Which movie. Which film was it? It never happened. Oh. Um, uh, it was called I'm From the Future. It was a comedy, it wasn't a horror film. But isn't it,
1: that going to happen? Uh, I, maybe someday by oh, okay. surprise, but I, it's on, no... it's on the list as upcoming of, uh, oh, is it still on, on IMDb? Oh, okay. Uh, oh, interesting.
3: I, okay. We should take that yeah. down. Yeah, we should probably yeah. take that off. <laughs> um, uh, but that's how we met Taika. That's too. how we,
2: also how we met Taika Waititi. Cause at yeah. one point the, the company that was producing the film was like, we can't raise the money with Josh. And it was a very painful thing, but she, he was like, I'll step aside and be a producer on it. And then Taika attached and then they weren't able to pull the money together. And then he went off and made, what we do in the shadows right, right and we went off and started a company
1: um, and he went on to do the zillion dollar movies yeah <laughs> and we didn't <laughs> but, yeah. um, uh, but so
2: yeah i mean we became friends through the process and mm. and you know we just started hanging out a lot and because it, it was that was an, a sort of an unusual thing where we approached elijah with a treatment and basically said like we want to write this for you and But, like, we can't do that if we don't know you're interested. So, you know, what do you think? Like, mm-hmm. let us write this for you. If you don't like it, you can just pull the ripcord at the end. But So we ended up sort of, like, producing together and inadvertently, yeah. like, crafting a movie together. And then that movie didn't happen, but I think we felt a real um, kinship. and We did. Something on, a lot was working. on a lot of levels, yeah. yeah. And we and just it,
3: started hanging out a lot. And... and during those times where we'd get together to discuss this other movie that really was just an excuse for us to hang out, we, we talked a lot about genre movies. Yeah. We talked about horror a lot. And music. It kept coming <laughs> yeah. up. Music yeah, as well. Yeah. And it kept coming up. And I had been sort of bouncing around this idea of starting a production company for some time. And I hadn't quite zeroed in on horror and genre as mm-hmm. being the the focal point until we, we all started hanging out. And it yeah. just became crystal clear that yeah. that's what we had to do together. Yeah so you know he proposed
2: it to us and i I think josh and i had never thought about being producers and that was in some ways felt like you know a little bit like changing teams or something and i I now understand that a producer is a creative position but i think at that time producer was very other to me yeah he's on the other side yeah yeah yeah. but we 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 gave it a shot and you know i think one thing i've learned in this business is that you know you know man plans and god laughs (laughs) being a Producer and having a company was never a dream, but mm-hmm. when something's working, you run toward it, and mm-hmm. it just started to work immediately. Just it was in in ways that I think for me, as my my screenwriting career wasn't happening, <laughs> and and I was like, we're getting movies made, and not only were they were we getting movies made, but they were the movies we wanted to make. Yeah, right. which as you know, when you're your writer for hire. You're begging, you're, you're opening up your wrists to get a job you don't even want. Yeah. You know, I, you're, I don't even I like this there. movie. I, yeah. And so yeah. that was, I hated that and I was ready to be done with it and didn't care how much money they were paying you me. You may as
1: well be in another business.
3: That's how I felt. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah, it, it, and then, you know, and we, then we, we were off and running. We were also talking a lot at the time. Well, I think what was really starting to crystallize for us too was that at the time there wasn't a place yeah. in the US that was the go-to company or mini studio that to make the the kinds of horror movies that that we love and we love all kinds but the stuff that we were kind of connecting on were things that at the time were primarily being made in europe things like let the right one in Hmm. um or the orphanage um or martyrs out of out of france um these these films that take their subject matter seriously and to a certain degree where you could remove the genre elements and still have a compelling story
1: where they're not aimed at teenagers
3: right yeah. or franchises yeah, exactly. yes exactly yeah totally and they don't just simply rest on their exploitable elements that there's something at its core that's meaningful and then that then extrapolated on t- into well what are the horror movies that we grew up that we love what are you know the golden mm, age of horror yeah Rosemary's 1970s. baby don't look now
2: invasion of the body snatchers these were who were making these films literary stories and and you know i think 10 the, the industry has changed a great deal in the last decade yeah um for the, for better, the better i think in terms, <laughs> yeah. in terms of what what is valued in the genre space in the indie genre space um and and a, well i mean the studios aren't making horror movies they're releasing
1: them sometimes but, yeah um, also, and the ones they're making have numbers in the title yeah
2: right Typically. Yeah. exactly but I, th- I think you know 10 years ago horror was a fairly robust business but it was generally being geared it was more grindhouse than art house, and <laughs> and I think our interest was in either bringing those two together, but or really leaning more into art house. And I think our thought was, well, if if horror is in terms of sales and mar- you know the market considered at a budget safe, mm. why not take advantage of that to try and do something greater and try and sneak in a Bergman film or a mm. you know uh, you know dr- you know at its heart is is a Bergman esque experience or. Uh, you know, et cetera, um, rather than just doing, you know, the easy, like, it's seven attractive young people in bikinis right. who are picked off one by one in the woods. And I, you yeah. know, those are fun, but those are fun. Enough. Too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to. Add there's to enough. The to Yes. <laughs> there's enough to last us to the end of humanity with that type of film. And so, you know, I think, you know, for us, it was, we wanted to create the kinds of movies that we loved, which mm-hmm. were, you know, movies that um, lift you up, that make you think about things. And you are they're not just purely escapism. And, and, and you know, the, the films that we really, that moved us so deeply, which we name-checked in the last five minutes, you know, are, are films that are about important subjects. They're about love and loss and marriage and fatherhood and, you know, motherhood and, uh, you know, and uh, grief and longing. And, you know, the, these are the feelings that horror can address. Faith, I mean, that's what, that's what,
3: that's what the exorcist is about. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) And it's, whereas I think,
2: you know, what we've come to believe is that when you, if you, if you put those themes in the front row, audiences aren't necessarily going to want to sign up for that experience right. what you got to do is you get invite them in a side door sneak them in yeah. yeah and then you go you know surprise this is a movie that asks you to confront your own death yeah. you know and, and mm-hmm. where and 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 that's how you know you you entertain them and hopefully move them and help them make their lives a little better because that's what art's supposed to do
1: and in truth isn't horror about confronting death yeah, uh, more than anything. Yes, you know, it's about <laughs> loss. It's a, it's about mortality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, did you find uh, is is the horror genre your favorite genre?
3: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I think genre in general yeah. is, uh, is my favorite kind of cinema. Um, I love all kinds, mm-hmm. but what I love about genre and horror is obviously a major part of that. Is it allows for creative choices that you couldn't get away with yeah. in a standard drama or a standard comedy. Um, it, it allows for flourishes. It allows for, you know, interpretation and exploration both visually and, and sonically, things that just wouldn't fit within the context yeah. of what one would consider a normal film. So that's why so many of the great directors that, that we look to now as the masters of their craft they got started in genre because yeah. it allows for experimentation and playing with the medium in ways that is not as acceptable within the other, outside the confines mm-hmm. of genre.
1: People who are not fans of the genre would be surprised to hear art and horror in the same sentence. Yeah, yeah, and you know they think of it as just teenage franchises. Or it's it's Saw or it's the, sure. it's Cabin in the Woods, Stalker, Killers, and the like. Mm. But what are the things that uh, that you're looking for when a director or a filmmaker comes to you and wants to do a SpectreVision film?
2: I think a few things. I mean, certainly, first and foremost is vision. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're interested in supporting visionary voices. But uh, I, I know, for me, as head of development, I, there's a, something that I am constantly saying, which is that we're we're not interested in any movie that doesn't have love in it, uh-huh. um, which I think is very... con contrary
3: to what people would expect to hear about horror. Well, um, emo
1: horror is my thing. <laughs>
2: <You know? laughs>
3: well, even, you know, well, even... just like, it's just not a horror that's purely nihilistic. Not purely nihilistic right, or, or,
2: or, or purely sadistic. Yeah. And, and, yeah, you there's know.
3: a cruelty to a
1: lot of modern horror, extreme Absolutely. horror, yeah. that is so ugly and off-putting to me that... Same. I, I, I don't want to feel like I have to take a shower after. I feel watch. the same way although yeah.
3: I must say I do love those movies some of you them you do right, for I, sure I, I, think More cl- than I climax do Climax is fucking yeah. extraordinary I, I and it's walked out of horrifying climax. experience <laughs> 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 um, Gasper Noe is uh, but, yeah he's yeah. intense but there's another yeah. film that yeah. I'm uh, what's the film Antichrist well the Antichrist what's ha- well, the Haneke film with the oh Funny Games Funny Games is a masterpiece yeah it's purely the original in uh, particular yes of course I I would say I would love to make that movie. That would be contrary to our mission statement yeah. in that sense. I would support it. Well, you, you did make Maniac. <laughs> but you, we... did,
1: you did remake Maniac.
3: That's true. We did not produce that, but I was in right. the remake yeah. of Maniac. People That's think right. we do, and I'm happy to let I know. them know. <laughs> I, love, I, love I love this <laughs> film. It's I love incredible. It yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'm sorry. I totally No, it's okay. After. Yeah. Uh, What were we talking about? Just about that we want our films to have some sense of Uh, love or hope in them. Yeah, Yeah. that it's not pure nihilism, and I agree with you. Yeah, it's humanity. It's humanity. Yeah, yeah,
2: Yeah, it's humanity. So, and 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 that doesn't mean that it isn't necessarily a dark or challenging experience. But I think if you know every film that we've engaged with has ultimately been about love.
3: Yeah, and I think it's also, the thing about horror sometimes is that people rely on the trick of horror rather than right. what the engine driving that trick mm-hmm. is. Yeah. So we're looking for an engine, yeah. and that engine can be love yeah. or, or any number of things, but it can't just be a trick. It can't the just be and the jump f- cuts fuck are you easy. up. Yeah, that yeah.
1: stuff's easy
3: Yeah. and forgettable. Yeah, the things that stick with
1: you are the ones that hit you in the heart, and anyway. absolutely, and that's what gets under your skin. Yeah, exactly.
2: The, the scene know. that I always come back to, and I, I the the Kaufman version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I mm. think I, I, it's, it's time for me to say this is one of my. You favorite You need to get films. that tattooed on your body. I it, know, I'm know. i constantly bringing it it's up. An <laughs> it's it is. it's, it's film, an amazing movie. It's a magnificent film. But the scene movie. where Brooke Adams turns to Ash in Donald Sutherland's arms is one of the most profoundly sad, moving depictions of losing someone that you love that I have ever seen. And it is expressed in the language of science fiction horror. And I, in a way that you couldn't get away with, if it were just a movie that were directly about losing someone you love, you couldn't, you couldn't do it. And, and I, I find that movie so haunting and, and it's a great example of the puzzle of, it's a movie that is utterly hopeless. Yeah. I mean, all all iterations of the body snatchers are the same that, that, that it, it is, there is absolutely no possibility that the protagonists will win. Mm -hmm. There's never a moment where you think, I see how they're going to get out of this. So why are we watching? Mm -hmm. We're watching them cling to love and humanity until their last breath. And there's something beautiful about that and hope and hope. That's incredibly beautiful and inspiring.
1: Yeah. Uh, That's a really great way to put it because that is a movie that you think about after the credits roll, and the most potent ones that that were made. I mean, going back to The Exorcist, even going back sure. to Night of the Living Dead, yeah. 1968. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here is the most depressing ending, yeah. but you, it, it haunts you. Yeah. I feel
3: like that movie changed the face of modern horror more than anything it, else. It absolutely did. Definitely. I feel like yeah. it literally like broke open the. Yeah. But it was, to new, your point,
2: it was, it, that movie was about God. You know, I mean, Blatty was asked once. I'm sure you know no this, but, yeah. Like, what? Why do people enjoy horror films? And he said, because if there's a devil, there's also a god. Right. It's a comfort. Mm. Uh, yeah. th- there is a system. There is some structure right. to all of this.
1: I had Blatty on my old Z Channel show <gasps> way back when. Wait, and you
3: had Friedkin a, as well. You had a channel. You had a show on Z Channel. Yeah, yeah it was I'm was gasping all the at all of film Festival wow. back wow, in 1979, so 80. Cool. Yeah, wow. Were, yeah.
1: And I had Blatty on, and when we had William Friedkin on, we it was. He's a tough We were enemy. showing Exorcist <laughs> and Exorcist Two on the Z Channel, and um, he was so blasphemous about <laughs> Exorcist Two, <II, laughs> they wouldn't run the show yeah. because he just ripped the shit out of everyone who made John Borman, everyone it's, who was involved It's in understandable. It's it was, got a yeah. great
3: score, though. That's any any more Yeah, and there's an amazing. Track that I've actually DJ'd out. Have you really? The, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, three, three. That soundtrack.
2: Uh, odd film, but a very interesting. It's oh, I really love come three. into yeah. its own. Yeah, in, in recent yeah. years, it's people have really come. To it. it's Yeah, it's it's a strange movie. Blatty was as a director <laughs> was an odd. It was a very odd cadence to yes. his films. That I think is similar to Clive Barker, where you can there's a cer- certain certain uh, amateurism that sometimes ends up accidentally being very effective and other yeah. times it just feels amateur. But I that's kind of part of the charm of those movies, I yeah. think. Well, and Ninth is, Configuration is another odd I love. Ninth I love configuration. Ninth Configuration. That's but why it, I had yeah. him on the Z
1: channel was uh-huh. to talk about that. We showed that movie. And it's, that's, so, weird. <laughs> it's so weird. It's so weird, but it's wonderful. That? The no. reviews were terrible. Yeah. But Blatty... Was originally a comedy writer. It, it, yeah. What?
2: Yeah. He it, it, it's funny. I nice bottom boat is and you know, Oh, I gotta see that. It's very seen. odd.
1: Yeah. He he wrote, really. St- the first time I ever saw him, he was on You Bet Your Life with Groucho Marx. What? He was a con- contestant on You Bet Your Life with Groucho. Wow. Marx. Bill Blatty. He was his name. Wow. Then. But he's also a very devout Christian. Very was. Yeah. a Very devout yeah. Catholic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and
2: I mean, it, you know, that 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 recut of Exorcist that. The yeah. I, I, you know, in, in some ways, is more uh, opportunity to see, um, with the scenes added in, you mean? Yeah, like the, a yeah, flawed version girl. of, yeah. I mean, the, there's some, a couple scenes added, the there's the one walk. scene added where the, the, the one, to me, the only scene that really should have been put back in it's was, the
3: scene with them speaking on the, the, on the landing stairs. of the stairs. Yeah. It's, Why it's, is this happening? It's magnificent. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. It's, yeah. The, yeah. it's the, it's yeah. the thesis of the movie.
2: Absolutely. It's amazing. And, it, and Bla- never, yeah.
3: Blatty was, I think, the one that was super yeah. upset it wasn't in.
1: Friedkin, who was on the TV version of Uh told me then that he did it for Blatty because Blatty really he wanted it out? to have the new uh, no, no he, he did he that cut, put it back in the, the recut oh. was not a director's cut it was more a writer's cut mm. b- although Friedkin himself did it um, but see. he did it mostly because Blatty really wanted to see it that way Dead and it just had made it's hundreds of millions of dollars so why not mm. Go
3: ahead. yeah he was yes. apparently very upset that that particular scene was taken out yeah but the all of the
2: additions with the cop And who's like, you know, revealed to have been like this kind of wacky Columbo figure is a good example of when you should cut something out of a movie. And (laughs) evidence that he was a comedy writer. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Getting back to your point. But I think that's, you know, I mean, that was that was actually something we talked about with Tyka on the podcast was Mm -hmm. that, you know, I made the observation that if you if you were to mic. An audience in a comedy, and take the sound out of the movie, and mic the audience in a horror film—they sound exactly the same. And you know, yeah. and that was you know when Jordan Peele was talking about making horror, and people were like, "What?" I remember yeah. us going, "That makes complete sense." It's it's what I call Colosseum cinema. Ah, it's like it's 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 getting idea. a big reaction, and 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 um, well, a
1: physical reaction. Horror and comedy both go for a physical, that's, visceral absolutely. reaction. Yeah, yeah. You scream, you grip your yep. arms of your chair. It's laughing. All of that stuff. And Absolutely. I, re- I, yeah. I remember seeing The Exorcist when it first came out on opening day uh, and giant theater filled with people so nervous mm-hmm. and laughing at any funny little thing that happened yeah. way more than it merited. Yeah. And, uh, and it was, you know, people had been hearing about an audience member's throwing up and mm-hmm. passing out and all of that. And that was an amazing experience mm-hmm. to have.
3: Oh, I can imagine. It's funny,
1: though, isn't it, that
2: comedy horror is such a hard nut to crack. Too. They're usually
1: You're... not funny or scary.
3: Correct. Yeah,
1: yeah. Or, <laughs> or they're more or funny they're than scary. Or one scarier, over the yeah.
3: other. Yeah. yeah. Rarely are they, rarely they the perfection
1: of yeah. an American werewolf in London. Well, 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 that's... Which,
2: you know, John takes issue with it being called a comedy. I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I I well, know. just as uh, uh, Friedkin takes issue with... Uh, Exorcist being called a horror film. Mm -hmm. And as John said about Friedkin's statement, too late. Yeah, Uh, Which we said back to him, too late. Well, that was on Cooties. That was something we were talking about very consciously is let's try and actually hit both. Yeah, uh, Lee Whannell wrote Cooties, right? And Ian Brennan, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, But we really wanted it to be, you know, to deliver as both a comedy and a horror film. And (laughs) Um,
1: Splatstick (laughs) as well. Splatstick, yeah, yeah. Splatstick. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good Splatstick in it. Uh, Do you think that uh, surely your career as an actor has impacted your ability to get SpectraVision going originally and continue in that way? Is uh, is that some responsibility you bear on that?
3: Um, In terms of people being aware of my work and there being a shorthand with uh, fellow artists in the creative community, yeah. I think... You know we all had relationships with people and filmmakers mm-hmm. prior, so mm-hmm. I feel like everybody brought something to that table but you know insofar as people would know know things that I would had done, it might provide an introduction in a way that you know yeah it would have been maybe slightly difficult had they not so yeah, that, that that I think, I think we maybe were, in the earlier days we
2: were very aware of it at the beginning is you know that you're you know you're people knowing you helped doors open right. more quickly than they would have but once those doors were open we yeah. still had to deliver the goods <laughs> right. it wasn't you know and, <laughs> so and I think you couldn't you know, rest on and that and when entirely. we started out and you know we went and met with like a you know all of our reps and they all kind of they were not taking it real seriously they were like Initially, oh yeah, yeah. another actor with his friends starting a production company <laughs> okay guys yeah, well I little, think and, and and
3: you know and uh, to their credit and also to their, <laughs> to to yeah, their yeah, largely to their, true well yeah. and all, to their credit and to their <laughs> folly I think yeah. that the, the you know When you tell someone at a major agency that you're about to embark on an independent horror film company <laughs> with you your know, two friends they're gonna yep. roll their yep. eyes maybe yeah, or not yeah. take it as seriously yeah. if you were gonna be embarking on something that in their minds is more marketable or, or easier to get sort of star power money behind so yeah. I think that was also well, like, plus
2: I think they get you know a parade of these meetings I'm sure but you know, and, yeah. but I, you know but give credit where credit is due your agent Brian DePersia WME was immediately supported. super and supportive. has been one of our primary and and Colonna at, at, at Brustina yeah, yeah, as well very, they both, yeah. both of them really really showed up and continue to be huge supporters and I think you know we're indebted to them. Yeah,
3: absolutely. Let's
1: talk about the changing World of distribution. Ugh. I mean, this is an incredibly challenging time. Yeah. Mm. People are still trying to figure out how to make streaming profitable. Yeah. Uh, you know, is there room for independent film and in theatrical distribution? Yeah. The importance of festivals to yeah. particularly the genre uh, films hugely but important. It, it, how much more difficult has it gotten? It seems to me the last two or three years, in particular, has been really, really rough.
3: It's tough. Um, this is a conversation that's been going on for a long time because the, the the distribution models for films, the way that films are distributed, always change and have been constantly evolving and changing. It's a terrible time to make money. It is a great time for there to be multiple avenues for films to be distributed. Mm -hmm. So those two things aren't mutually exclusive. You
1: can make movies, but not money. (laughs) Yeah,
3: it's not a great time to see returns and to make a great deal of money or to to put something out on 2,000 screens is fucking impossible. Mm -hmm. That's hard. But getting people around to rally around your crazy ideas or the movies that may or may not have gotten attention prior... And for those films to have su- find a way to find an audience on some distribution platform, be it a streamer, be it Netflix, be it yeah. a small theatrical release. Yeah. Shudder yeah. has been incredibly supportive to the community. Yeah. There, it, I, I can't outright say it's a horrible time. It's just a different time. The, the way that film is distributed is different. I've always... You know, as streaming has taken more of a hold than theatrical, obviously there's a great deal of bemoaning the the lack of a theatrical release and a a time that seems to be passing us by. That being the case, I also think that, you know, there are people in in various towns in the Midwest who never would have had access to Mm -hmm. any of these films, that because of streaming (laughs) platforms like Netflix and even iTunes and Shudder are being given access to films that they never would have been mm-hmm. able to see because they're not going to the video store to rent these movies. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't know. I, I, I see a positive outlook in in the way that things are distributed now. It's it's harder to get them to larger audiences, right. and it's harder to make money off of it. Well, I don't we've know. got a,
1: a movie currently now that I made, uh, Nightmare Cinema, mm-hmm. that is the most independent movie I've ever worked on in what life. sense yeah, well it was funded completely independently it was mm-hmm. very low budget yeah it was all like let's get together and put on our own show mickey sure. and judy and yeah. you know it was you know it, it looks incredibly polished we got an amazing group of actors and mm-hmm. technicians and mm-hmm. all uh, did it for much less than it looks like mm-hmm. and we got token theatrical distribution <laughs> the shutter time. is involved down <laughs> yeah. the line they're going yeah. to be uh they're going to be running it later in the year, mm-hmm. um, but it's tough. Every penny yep. I got paid went back into the movie. Yep, and I made a movie, but I didn't make money. Yeah, um, you know who knows what's going to happen in the future. But so, how does a company that that works in this business model maintain itself and be able to get funding for yeah. productions?
2: We're a we're really odd. We're outliers, I think, in many ways. And, you know, when we started the company, we literally said aloud to each other, let's see what happens Mm. if we create a company where we choose projects based solely on our heart response to them, not on what the market needs. And then we try to bend the economic reality around that project. Um, Let's, it's an experiment. Let's try it. And I think that. That's had uh, both a great benefit and also a great limitation. The limitation is that you know that we have not had a movie go to two thousand screens. Mm. We've mm. come close a couple times, but it hasn't happened. But but uh, but we're also still here, <laughs> ten years later, and, right. and we've made you know actually enough films that I've lost count. Which is, is <laughs> That's a good I'd have thing. to stop and think about it for a minute. Um, uh, I think that our greatest currency is that we mean it. Mm -hmm. And um, we've just been really blessed in that we've – our sincerity has attracted other people who are sincere, including financial partners. And, you know, the last two movies that we made, Daniel Isn't Real and Colorado Out of Space with Adam Egypt Mortimer and Richard Stanley were both backed by a company called Ace Pictures – um which uh was kind of a fantasy scenario that you know we found a financier out of Malaysia who um was ge- genuinely motivated by um wanting to make great genre cinema and not <laughs> yeah, so like much you know um, and <laughs> no and, and, and supported us and with their dollars and their spirits yeah. and their and um and the, and they allowed us to make these two really out there movies that that you know i i don't know who else would have done it and and so you know and now i i I think hopefully we'll be announcing something soon but i think we're walking into another slate deal that will allow us to keep going for another handful of years so it's you know we we just um we i think there is a great power to actually um Having a value system that you stand by yeah, and yeah. putting your money where your mouth is, and it's and a
1: company with a philosophy.
2: It's a company mm-hmm. with a philosophy that that you know we maintain, and we're. I think we can be very frustrating sometimes to the people around us that are managing the economics of what we do because we are incapable of doing anything dishonestly. I mean, you know, (laughs) I remember hearing when I was at NYU and I was lucky enough to do some seminars with Sidney Lumet. And I remember him saying, you know, the genius of the greatest actors is that they are not capable of doing something dishonest. You can ask Mm. them to, and if it doesn't feel honest, they literally cannot do the take that way. And I think, you know, I, I think we're kind of like that. Like yeah. we're asked to change ourselves or to repat, and we try and we, c- we I literally can't we're allergic do it. To it. I, we can't it, yeah. do it. I'd yeah. rather
3: not do it. Right. Yeah,
2: <laughs> but I think you know our 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 philosophy is that um, you know I was incredibly lucky to have a very close relationship with jerry lewis the last 10 years of his life and and one of the things you know he taught me a lot of things but one of the thing i remember one day he he said um he said kid i want to tell you the secret to success in hollywood and i said great i'm all ears and he said you create a fraternity of artists the business people come and go but if the artists always have each other's back you will have all the power and there was a great wisdom to that because mm-hmm. it, this is something you've heard me say before, but I would say a dollar is worth a dollar no matter whose wallet it's coming out of. But an idea is individual. It's unique to the brain that it came out of, to the heart that it came out of. Yeah. And that's the currency that we're interested in. So I think for us, wh- where we've gone all in is, is is in in trying to identify filmmakers that we believe are important and vital and genuinely supporting and protecting them and challenging them um, and not exploiting them and giving them a good experience and helping them to realize the film that was in their heart. And that, that... our, our naive hope is that that will allow us to keep doing what we do in some way. Either and that'll connect with people. That, that'll connect with people that'll continue attracting the you know, powerful filmmakers who are looking for that kind of purity and sincerity and, and, then, and also financiers who are looking for that. And so, you know, it's, it's, gotten, it's kept us going for 10 years. <laughs>
1: Well, you guys are the United Artists of Independent Horror. <laughs> I <laughs> love rules. that, except they went out of business. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it, it is a company run by artists. You know, right. you're, you're entrepreneurs, yeah. but you're also filmmakers yeah. and performers. I mean, that was the whole philosophy when I created Masters of Horror, yeah. mm-hmm. to get the best people possible to so mm-hmm. say no rules. You can do whatever you want, mm-hmm. as long as you do it for this amount of money in this number mm-hmm. of days. Mm-hmm. And it's a philosophy that I think creates more great work than anything I've seen. Mm.
2: For sure. Yeah. I and mean, we talked a lot about UA and, you know, that was, the, you know, and then, you know, Cruise Wagner and, you know, there, there's, there's typically it fails. The endeavor fails when right. you put the, you know, when the inmates are running the asylum and we're mm. very aware of that. And, you know, so we're, we've been very careful to make sure as we've grown, we're not just three of, I think we're a company now, is 14 people Mm -hmm. but you know we've been very deliberate about making sure that we're counterbalancing our lunacy with you know more sanity uh uh uh, you know we have a lot of very smart as it happens by no design a lot of very smart women that we work with who um are uh, make sure that what all of the crazy impulses that we have are organized in a way that keeps revenue coming in keeps the lights on (laughs) well you've (laughs)
1: remained in the philosophy you started with in that even uh AIP, you know, they thought, oh, we can make Meteor and make a a big budget studio movie to compete with everybody else, and they couldn't. No, and you have not overreached what your initial attempt was. Mm -mm. You know,
3: no, no, Um, and and also I think if you try and design your way into that sphere, it doesn't work either. It has to be organic. (laughs) Something has to come into your life that you you recognize as being something that's gonna connect with people and you give that thing life. I, I think the idea of reverse engineering a success is lunacy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just it's it's ne- it's not it's never it's not gonna work work because it's not pure. Yeah. You have to just find either the idea has to be pure or you find something that's been written or a filmmaker that's got something that's like, okay, that is gonna connect at a on a larger agreed. level. You know, and we'll know it when we see it, I guess. Yeah, I agree. Yeah.
1: Well, Elijah, I, I do want to talk a little more about your acting career, because sure. you had a great career as a kid, and you were able to make that transition. Uh, I think Ice Storm was maybe the midpoint. That's interesting, which yeah. Is, I would say that, too, actually. I, I think it's, first of all, it's one of my favorite films. Same. So good. One of my favorite of your films, but Thank just you. in general. I love that film, too. It's a brilliant Brilliant piece of work, yeah. But you were able to transition into adulthood as well, mm-hmm. and very, very few actors have been able to pull that off. Mm. Um, how do you think that you were able to traverse that course?
3: I think it's multifaceted. Um, I can only speak because it—it's not by any fine design, right? I don't. Th- I think that's quite difficult t- to to lay out a path for yourself in an in industry that is opportunity based, especially as an actor, it's just difficult to navigate or create a path that you're like, I can, if I get from A to B to Z, it just doesn't work that way. Cause you're given um, choices. Exactly. Yeah. You're, you're, you're at the mercy of what is available to you, and what you can put yourself out there for. Um, I think some of it is being raised by, I give so much credit to my mother for raising me as a human being first and, instilling me with a great sense of humility and never allowing myself to be defined by being an actor or the work that I did, but rather being defined as a human and that this was something that I did. So there was a real sense of normalcy and a ground in this. So you I went think to school
1: normally and yeah,
3: I mean, I, I ended up having to stop going to public school because the public school wasn't so psyched about me being gone all the time. Right. <laughs> um. So I did a lot of homeschooling, but there was a great sense of normalcy. So, I think that that sense of groundedness helped me navigate that period of time where there are great pitfalls of success if you don't have that humility to sort of keep you centered and so that I think had a lot to do with it and I think I I was I was luck too I I was never I was never pigeonholed for being one specific thing as a child actor I moved from being a child actor in, in films that were maybe geared towards children or families into films mm-hmm. that were more adult. The Ice Storm is a really good example of that, mm-hmm. and I think you're totally right. I do think that was sort of this interesting midpoint where... Did it feel transitional? It totally did. Yeah. It, it did on a lot of levels. You? I was 15 mm-hmm. or 16.
2: How cognizant were you of like, what it might have meant in terms of the transition about your, how you were perceived? Pretty
3: yeah. cognizant in yeah. the sense that the material was a, was a great leap. <clears throat> I'd never been a part of a film like that before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I watched his uh, Ang Lee's films mm-hmm. prior, so mm-hmm. I was aware of his work mm-hmm. and recognized his level of, <clears throat> of skill as a filmmaker right. and as an auteur. And it was immediately different from an experiential yeah. standpoint as well. Mm-hmm. I was sent um, a, 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 a printed out packet of information about the 1970s with excerpts wow. from books, wow. magazines, <laughs> uh, advertisements, ephemera mm-hmm. from the era to familiarize myself with. I was given three, two or three CDs that my character might listen to. Wow. Do you remember what, mm-hmm. was, what? it was? Uh, it was, I think, Forever Changes.
1: Oh, by love, <gasps> really? I think, I I think wow. so.
3: Yeah, that's I think a it great. was. I love that album. I yeah. believe it was. It was a Yes record, <laughs> and oh, it was dark, "Dark Side of the Moon" oh, from um, uh, Pink Floyd. Wow. So my character, and oh, and then we were also given a questionnaire for each actor to fill out as their character. Wow. So, like, I was being asked to think about character development in a way that I'd never been mm, asked to before, wow. and that was hugely influential and. It was this incredible education of approaching the craft from a way that I'd never thought of before. And that included about a week to two-week period at a dance studio in New York where there was formal rehearsals. And that was Tai Chi that we did together. Uh, Each character who had a formative relationship in the context of the movie were put together as actors to discuss their relationship. And there was even movement training, working out sequences with lots of actors and how characters would move and it just it everything felt on a level that I'd never really thought about the process before so it was from there on out my life was changed the way I looked at cinema the way I looked at filmmaking the way I looked at acting and I think that that then led me into the next phase of being a teenager into being an adult and Well, the
1: veracity of that time period is portrayed so beautifully as someone who lived there. (laughs) Right. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. But also just the sense of... We talked about the sense of loss. It's Mm. not a horror film, but this... Mm real sadness and this mm. overwhelming darkness mm. to the drama was so powerful it felt almost like a horror film it's an uncomfortable it's film a, yeah and wonderfully so mm. but I, i'm glad to know that that was particularly transitional for you.
3: hugely yeah and i love the experience and and it wasn't just working with ang it was working with that cast it, yeah. it's such It's sigourney weaver kevin klein mm. um like what a what a truly exceptional group of people yeah. Both young and older, and they were all so generous. Uh, I was fifteen, and they were—they <laughs> yeah. treated me like an equal, and, mm-hmm. and that was hugely mm-hmm. influential to me as well. It was really an exceptional experience. Well,
1: fifteen-year-olds um, are thoughtful too, and they're never right. portrayed that way. Sure, you know, uh, there's so much more to to their lives than a
3: party. Totally, you know? yeah.
1: Especially what happens to this group of young people. Yeah, but. Now, moving on to the Hobbit films, to the <laughs> Rings films. Yeah. Suddenly, this is movie stardom that had to be beyond what anything had happened to you before. Oh, without question. Yeah, no, nothing. So how, how did that affect you? What what were, were the ways in which that had an impact on you? Suddenly oh, you're on covers of magazines sure. and all of this. Sure.
3: Sure. Um abstract it's very abstract i think i compartmentalized all that stuff very quickly i was lucky enough to be one of the the group of actors amongst the whole group that had had some experience prior to being recognizable even though it was at a much lower scale right Uh, i had some experience i've been working since i've been at that point working for 10 years so i had some tools nothing can prepare you for the the degree of exposure and success that that it was meteoric it was you know it becomes a part of pop culture instantly and and it becomes this sort of piece of classic filmmaking so fast um nothing can really can really prepare you for that but it all i had was my experience making it so what i rested on was it's this thing now that is now a part of the universe that you all have but my ownership is I've been spending four years in New Zealand making these films, <laughs> forging these relationships, and having this very intimate experience that was on a scale much – even though it was a massive scale, it was a scale much smaller than what it became publicly, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So as soon as we were suddenly on the sides of airplanes and on the sides of buildings, <laughs> I, I very quickly – Compartmentalize those two things is well. That's Frodo, and that's Lord of the Rings, and this is my experience. So you were
1: able to protect your private life, yeah, despite the spotlight.
3: Yeah, it felt manageable. I mean, that's my that's my memory of the experience right. is just being able. Because I remember people would say, "God, isn't it fucking crazy that you're on the side of that building?" And I was like, "Yeah, it's not, but it's it's contextual. Frodo. <laughs> it's contextual. It's yeah. Yeah. this movie that's coming out. I recognize that it's a big deal, but." Oh, I yeah. I mean, it was, there was an adjustment, of course. I, I, I can't, I think it'd be silly to sort of write it off as having been like the easiest transition, but it, it was all in context. I think yeah. I just very quickly was able to separate my, my work and my experience, which was loomed so large for me because it was such an extraordinary experience making it and what it then became and supporting the thing that it became and those being two separate entities, I guess. Yeah. This is a, my, my observation
2: is your close friend is you're by far the healthiest famous person I've ever, met. and, and you know, the, you, that compartmentalization I think is incredibly healthy. And, and, you know, I've heard you say like, you know, about that, like, oh, that's not me. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, and I and, and I think a lot of people who are in your position do feel like that's them and it's not right. and, it, and it creates a difficulty with you know, having intimate relationships and sure. you know, you you've been insistent on just being a normal person yeah. uh, when you're not working and yeah, uh, or even when you are working and, and
3: it's you know it's some lovely. people want to be stars and some people yeah. want to be actors. Yes. Yeah. 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 The the wanting to be famous thing is not something I don't understand. Hmm. Because it's yeah what comes with being successful is, you know, um, scrutiny and, you know, it's difficult for, for people at, at levels way higher than mine to leave their homes. And that is not a, that is not a life that is, sh- should be, um, desired. I, I don't, under, <laughs> it's I don't horrible. understand. It's so undesirable. <laughs> it's like a Twilight Zone episode. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. Everywhere I go, people interrupt me and, yeah, <laughs>
2: fetishize me
3: and it, yeah, it, it's. I, I find it a strange thing to want to achieve. Um, I think achieving a level of success that allows you to perpetuate what you love to do—that's awesome. That's yeah, the that's yeah. the ultimate, where you can kind of occasionally go under the radar, but you're recognizable enough to, yeah. you know, that people want to keep working with you. Yeah, I think to benefit that's, from it. exactly. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, you've also made a lot of really. Alternative, independent choices, even doing television. Wilfred is yeah. not your standard television series. Definitely not. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Dirk Quickley's holistic uh, detective agency. Yeah. Also very quirky choices. Did you choose them because they were other than standard fare, or was it just the choices available? To it
3: you? W- well uh, maybe a bit of both, but I think I don't think I ever consciously choose something because it's going to subvert people's expectations of what uh. I'm going to do. I'm just attracted to interesting material that may be slightly left of center, so when it comes to Dirk Gently or uh, Wilfred, both of those were things that I read that I fell in love with because I thought they were weird and funny, and it they spoke to me it's the same uh, yeah. it's the same process we have picking films for for um for vision. Is it's it's ultimately about a heart response what you what you connect with and recognize that you can't not be a part of that thing and More often than not, I suppose, it tends to be slightly left of center. But I'm not actively looking for things to fuck with people.
1: (laughs) Yes. So to producers and directors out there, (laughs) not just the quirky stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) yeah. So what does the future of SpectreVision hold for us?
2: Visitations. Yeah. Well,
1: I wanted to get into that too. So Um, uh, yeah, visitations being... The new podcast. It's on Shutter. It's on Apple. Yeah, all yeah. the usual places.
3: Yeah. yeah, all the places you listen to podcasts. But well, we can go
2: there. But we and a lot of the people yeah.
1: who are guests on visitations have made movies with you. Uh, some some, some of them. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah.
2: yeah. Wait, Panos, Anna Lily and, Panos and, and, Panos and, Panos and, and,
1: and that's it, I think. So well, far, well, the musicians yeah. and
2: uh well, we, have, Lotus we haven't has, worked with Philo We were uh, we almost worked. We almost worked with, with Yeah
1: people you have a history with. Yeah, oh, they are all people, people that we know. have a history T-O-I-T-T with. ITT yeah. talked yeah. about how you worked in development with him.
2: Yeah, yeah.
3: that's right. That's yeah. A, yeah. No, there are all people that we we've we've known um either very closely or 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 you yeah. know as, as acquaintances, but yeah.
2: Well, the basic concept of the show, you know, sh- shuttered approach us about creating a podcast and I think, you know, we what we wanted to do with it was um we felt like, you know, I think similar to Spectre Vision, we're like, okay, well, let's not do what is already being done and done well. Let's do what isn't being done. And I mm. think for us, what wasn't being that w- what we hadn't seen was um, uh, a podcast that was sort of less about career and more about what drives a career. And so what we aspired to do was what we. We we talk a lot about the Mazels brothers and and oh, you wow. know the, who made Salesmen and um, right. Great, Great Gardens Garden, and, yeah. and also and and but some of my favorite works from their their them were um, the short films which are I think almost impossible to find but they did a, a short thing where they just went to Truman Capote's house and just. Filmed him doing nothing, like doing the dishes mm. and going through his mail. And they did one with Brando that's unbelievable. And, and it's and, real
3: fly on the wall documentation. Yeah. It's not, they don't insert themselves. I mean, Great Gardens is a good example of that, too. Yeah. are just with them. You're just with them. And you yeah. never, he- you don't, you rarely ever hear them. There's yeah. no, it's not, there's no, no, no questions, narrations. there's no narration. There's no it's questions. just these yeah. people
2: living. And yeah. Yeah. So I think we you know, we the, the concept of visitations is that we go to the homes and the workplaces of artists who are largely genre filmmakers, but we also meet
3: with Kate and Laura Malevy or Rodarte who did the who directed a film Woodshock uh, they also designed the, the costumes um, the ballet costumes for black swan mm. um, yeah. and are huge huge horror fans themselves but yeah. are primarily fashion designers so we go, you know we go to their homes and and we you know we mic things very uh, unobtrusively
2: and then our crew literally leaves and <laughs> it's just the three of us and we and it's it's people we know to varying degrees you know either from acquaintances to close friends and and i think the idea was you know, I think like when we were young, and even now, we there are artists whose all you have is their work, and that work is incredibly meaningful to you. And but but it, what's less common is to have access to who they are as people Mm. and and so what our what visitations does is it it allows you to kind of um eavesdrop on a private conversation amongst three friends who or or, you know friends and acquaintances who are all you know in the bit in the same business together and and um what 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 are those conversations like and and you know we don't we try not to do a lot of talking Mostly listening, and when we do talk, we cut ourselves out. Um, (laughs) uh, But, you know, we so, you know, we are for we did Taika Waititi. We did Mike Flanagan, Anna Lilia Mirpour, John Landis, Flying Lotus, Redarte, Dan Harmon, uh, Richard Stanley, Panos Mm -hmm. Cosmatos and then we have one more episode coming up uh we're recording tomorrow and um and what we talk about is we don't it's not promoting any work or or talking about it's what we talk about uh, kind of what we talked about a little bit at the beginning of this conversation why do you what moves you what motivates you what scares you what what was your childhood like like?
3: informed on the person that you came to be and
2: and I think you know, by, by virtue of there being just the three of us in the room, every time at the end, the guest says, "I forgot we were recording," <laughs> and 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 we've got, we've captured some really profound conversations mm. uh, about why people become artists and, and specifically what has driven them to make dark stuff and and sort of the therapeutic value of horror and genre, and and it's been quite moving and, and quite surprising. I mean, we've discovered. Some fascinating commonalities mm. that I think you actually alluded to at the top here um, uh, that we weren't we didn't go in expecting to a- accidentally be conducting a psychological study. <laughs> where could, you know, we're, we're collecting data. Um, uh, but but a lot of people had almost identical childhoods. Um, very similar kinds of events happening and then and then we started to realize that it was true for us too mm. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the things that you know the, certain the, things the yeah. cer- certain things it's and a commonality yeah, yeah a
3: commonality and, and, and um, well it's like at the end of the day it's a bunch of misfits isn't it it's a bunch of misfits yeah. yeah and that wasn't the intention when we set out to interview these people as we were making a list of our hopefuls We weren't, like, that wasn't a quality we were looking for. Um, We were just looking for a diverse group of people who make, you know... Art related to genre in some way, and it yeah. just happens that most of them are misfits. Um, yeah, they were, yeah. and we are too, I guess. Um, yeah. yeah,
0: thank yeah. God for the misfits. I know. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Well,
1: guys, thank you so much for being with us, and uh, it's really a pleasure. And I just thank can't you so wait much to listen to all of the visitations. Thanks, and, man, and uh, keep exploring the Spectre Vision catalog. Uh, thank you. Thank
3: you so much for having us. It's an honor to be interviewed by you. It's Super it cool. Really is. Uh,
1: couldn't be better to have you guys here. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Thanks. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to Producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com.
2: Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.